As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and we have got World Cup qualifying right around the corner. The USMNT hoping to book their place in the 2022 World Cup, ideally avoiding an intercontinental playoff. We'll see how it all plays out. On today's show, we're taking a look at the U.S. roster. Then we're going to be previewing the three teams the U.S. will be facing in this final round of qualifying. To do so, I'm joined by two fine gentlemen. Up first, the man who is not at all concerned about the mounting injury list for the USA. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Thanks for not being nervous. You know, Taylor, injuries are a social construct. I've already given Gio Reyna my hamstrings. There's nothing more that I really can do. I'm not even sure he needed them in the first place. This has got to be some sort of conspiracy. And this is a little bit of a give a mouse a cookie situation because you gave up those hamstrings and now people need ankle ligaments. People are coming to you for like rib bones. It's a whole thing, Joe. I, I, I'm hoping you're holding on to at least some vital organs. Great reference. I hope I hope that Revy loves those books. I like those books a lot as a kid. Man, Taylor, we're just that, I, I heard what you said, but I'm just so distracted by if you give a mouse a cookie and I, I just love it. I try, my friend. I try. Uh, so that's Joe Lowry. Joe, love you too, buddy. Joining <laughs> us today, our honorary USMNT supporter, it's Graham Ruthven. Hi, Graham. Hello, Taylor. I am also nervous uh, because Scotland don't have a, a meaningful game in this window, yeah. so I've decided to attach my allegiance to the US for this window. Go well, Graham. America? Is that yeah. what you say? Yeah. You have to say it with the question mark like that. Go America? Sure. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> well, since you've embraced the USA, I'm going to do the same with your culture. Graham, you ready? Okay. Did you hear the carbonation and the twist? So that if it's in line with Scottish culture, that's either uh, an iron brew or a beer. <laughs> that is an iron brew carbonated flavored soft drink. I have never had one of these before. Really? I bought have it yesterday at the store. I have one in my hands. Oh, drink wow. It. Drink it. Drink it. Live review. I know this isn't live, but it's live for us. That is weird. That is very weird. It tastes like orange. It tastes like orange. Like a, It tastes like a little bit like an orange creamsicle. I'm into it. Graham, you had yeah. said it tastes a little bit like a cream soda. I'd say like an orange cream soda. That 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 burp there was. I was not gonna a say drinking thing. soda live during a podcast. <laughs> it was good. I did try to move the mouth noise away from the microphone. I hope I succeeded <laughs> in that one. But Graham, I may be a convert here. I, I, I enjoy it. How many of these do you go through a day? 
um, at least two. Um, and and then that's not even counting the fried foods that i will dip in iron brew and uh yeah that's that's a natural thing that you can get at the chip shops in scotland iron brew fried things iron brew fried ice cream is yeah so is is the ice cream flavor like is it iron brew flavored is that is that no i think the batter is iron brew flavored oh wow yeah wow that's a real thing yeah you're you're special you're a special guy wow all right i I'm glad I've had Iron Brew. Uh, I feel more connected to Graham. I'm glad that Graham is now connected to the U.S. Uh, we did a lengthy roster preview show last week. Allocation Disorder put out a roster review episode on Friday uh, last week as well. We're going to spend some time on the U.S. roster. The bulk of this show will be taking lengthier looks at our opponents, our upcoming three opponents. But let's get to the roster. Joe, who are our goalkeepers now that we know for sure who will be here? There are three, Zach Steffen, Sean Johnson, and Ethan Horvath. No Matt Turner, who is still, uh, as far as I know, back with New England, trying to rehab from his foot injury. Um, so it's just those three. It really feels to me, fellas, like Zach Steffen is the the starter and the, the obvious starter for these three games. Berhalter said in this press conference last week that it was between him and Ethan Horvath, which, I mean, go for it. Add as much controversy and questions to the pregame prep for all these opposition as you can and as, as you want to. But it really, to me, guys, feels like Zach Steffen's the guy here. Yeah, Joe, I, I was maybe a little bit more open to the possibility of it being Horvath. I'm uh, open to it, but I just don't uh, think it's likely. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Berhalter in the press conference said Ethan Horvath is in contention to start. It will be an assessment late between him and Zach Steffen. But when I look back at uh, past U.S. games, kind of forgot that it was Zach Steffen who started against Mexico. Uh, so if we're looking for maybe some level of stability in that first game, I, I lean towards Zach Steffen uh, as well. But if it is Ethan Horvath in one of these games, I am okay with that. Not a ton else to say about goalkeepers, I think, aside from I'm glad Zach Steffen is there. Graham Ruffin, can you take us through our defenders where we have a bit more to talk about? Of course, yes. Yeah. So just running through the, the selection that was made, we have Reggie Cannon. Initially, we have Sergino Dest, who then picks up an injury, unfortunately, for playing for Barcelona. He is now out of the roster for this window. He was replaced by uh, George Bello. Um, you then have Aaron Long, Eric Palmer-Brown, Anthony Robinson, uh, Miles Robinson, James Sands. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> uh, DeAndre Yedlin and Walker Zimmerman. Zimmerman. Uh, now, James Sandsgram, I don't know if you know this or not, he plays for Rangers, and they're a club in <laughs> Scotland. I don't know if you're familiar, but if you are vaguely Heard familiar them, yeah. with them or with James Sands, uh, how surprised were you to see him uh, listed as a defender and listed in this team? Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the defender thing there. It was funny for me to see Sands in this roster, um, not because I don't think Sands is, is a decent player. He obviously showed that in MLS and in previous camps and in games for the, for the US as well. Um, but as you say, it was very, very interesting to see him in the defenders section on the roster. And of course, there's some fluidity in the the, the selection in that there's nothing to stop Berhalter playing him in, in central midfield. But that has, that has pr- primarily been where he has played for Rangers this season has been in midfield. Um, I know I know he's played at centre back for the US before, but still that was a while ago. And he's he's just not he's not played much for Rangers. He certainly hasn't played as a defender. He played at the weekend there because Rangers rotated their squad after after the Europa League, and he was he was frankly poor. Um, he should have been sent off for one tackle. He never got a, a grip of the game against frankly the the worst team in the league in, in the Scottish top flight Dundee. And so I just think if if you're looking for a if you're looking to Scotland for a defender to to maybe pad out that that selection, um, it's crazy to me that you look to Sands, 
who is barely featuring in a Rangers midfield, rather than CCV, who is an ever-present for a Celtic team that are at the top of the league. And obviously maybe Berhalter is looking to Sands for slightly different things. Maybe he's going to play yeah. in, in that midfield unit at the Azteca to, to solidify things up. I don't think that is completely out of the question. But having him in that defender's list suggests that he's primarily being looked at as a defender and I just I can't quite get my head around looking to him over CCV if you're looking to Scotland at all. It's it's a really interesting comparison there, Graham, that you're making between Sands at Rangers and CCV at Celtic. For me, this can't be based on form, right? That's the point you're making here. It can't be yeah. Baralter watching the film from from the SPL and thinking, oh, Sands is clearly a better player right now and is playing better for his club than CCV. Which means then if it's not that, and we all agree that that doesn't make any sense, then it has to be, well, Sands brings more positional versatility than CCV, which I, I do believe it's true. I think you'd be, you'd be crazy not to think that. Sands has played central defensive midfield. He's played that uh, number six role, and that's, that's what he's good at, or at least what he was good at in a, in a double pivot in a 4-2-3-1 for NYCFC. But he's also done the lone number six thing, and he's also done the center back thing in a back four and in a back five. I think Sands is in this roster because he brings some of that positional versatility. I would be shocked if we saw him in any sort of double pivot after the Honduras game, but I wouldn't be shocked if we saw him in the middle of the back three at some point in this window, or worst comes to worst, Tyler Adams picks up another yellow card, he's suspended for a game, then Sands is your backup option for Kellen Acosta at the six. I like this move. Like we mentioned last week, there's no cap on the number of players you can bring in. So yeah, why not bring in a guy who's got a little positional versatility to his game? Joe, I agree with everything you've said, and I'm glad you mentioned that Honduras game. Where I get confused is James Sands in relation to John Brooks, who both of you had in your hopefully he gets called in rosters. John Brooks not in this roster. Uh, Berhalter talked about how they weren't kind of pleased with his form last time around, how he just wasn't kind of uh, what they needed. He got follow-up questions that I'll, I'll, I'll quote in a moment, but I just wanted to point that out because James Sands also not particularly good when last we saw him, not in the best run of form. Burhalter talked about how he wants players in form. Uh, when pressed on why uh, John Brooks was not included, uh, the gist of his answer that I could type down as quickly as possible was, we weren't happy with this form, and then in November and January, it was about his club form. There are details about his game that we have to improve, and we don't have time for that right now. When this settles down and we have time to address his deficiencies, then we will. That is Baralter talking about John Brooks. I guess maybe James Sands for that versatility. There are fewer concerns about some of his uh, deficiencies. That's Berhalter's own word, because it feels like a harsh word to me. Yeah. But I remain completely befuddled about the John Brooks omission. And I'm assuming there are other things going on. Maybe it's a personality clash. Maybe it's just he doesn't fit with what they want. Maybe he wouldn't be starting and wasn't so thrilled with that idea. We've talked about this previously. But I think I remain sort of, not that he cares, not that it's important, but just <laughs> unsatisfied by that explanation because it seems like there is more to this story than we're getting. Joe, am I being too harsh or do you share the concerns about uh, Brooks not being involved? No, you're not being too harsh. I wish John Brooks was here, right? I, I wish he was in the last window. I think he he does bring something that no other center back in the pool brings. And so when Baralter's talking about how there are deficiencies in his game, that's true, but that's overshadowing all the the pluses that he brings as well with the ball at his feet and the work he can do to break down a team, especially in a window where you have Panama at home in a must-win game. And you're likely going to be tasked with breaking down a 4-4-2 block. So it just feels to me like he's a player that is always useful to have on a roster because of what he does differently than everyone else. The only other thing I think is interesting here is Brooks put out a statement uh, to Derek Ray. He talked with Derek Ray of ESPN. 
and basically said, you know, I, I accept this decision, but I, I want to play for the U.S. again before the World Cup and fight, and, and I want to make it back. And I'm all for that, right? Go for it, John Brooks. It just feels so unlikely to me at this point. Baralter's talking about improving his game. John Brooks is 29. He's not going to change his game. He's he's not going to get better now as a 29-year-old center back. It's only going to get worse from here, right? That's just the reality of the situation. I think it's naive, and, and maybe there's things I don't know that really can be resolved before the World Cup. I just think it's naive and extremely unlikely that we ever see John Brooks in a U.S. uniform before the 2022 World Cup. Maybe ever under Greg Berhalter, if Berhalter's still around post-2022 World Cup. It just feels to me like this saga has gone on for long enough that if Brooks was going to come back in the team, it would have happened by now. Yeah, and it would have been for this window as well with, with Chris Richards out and, and not available through injury. This was kind of a make or break window for Brooks in terms of uh, working under Berhalter. And it's it's really weird to me because he, Berhalter keeps talking about his de- his deficiencies. I don't know if that's particularly wise to air that, to be honest, in, in public there is a a much easier way that saves everyone a lot of grief if, if Berhalter just says, yeah, he just didn't make the cut for this roster, but he's he's now talking about his deficiencies. Then everyone talks about his shortcomings as a player. I'm not particularly sure that Brooks has that many great shortcomings that stop him getting on this roster. It reminds me a little bit of, to draw a comparison to, uh, to England, how Southgate keeps talking about Alexander-Arnold's deficiency is completely ignoring what he brings to the squad mm. in other ways than everyone talks about Alexander-Arnold's, uh, what he's not so good at. And then it, then it, the, the conversation kind of runs and runs and runs. It's kind of similar with Brooks. So I, I agree, Joe. He's, he's not in the roster for this camp. I, I just don't see how he's going to get back in before the World Cup. So I think he has previously said, yeah, he's not what we need for this camp. He's not right for right now, but you know, we'll have him back in camp going forward. And then obviously we have not. So I think he has tried to be vague. And I think he tried to be vague even in this press conference. He just got pressed for details. Joe, I'm going to let you play a uh, PR consultant for a moment. If Berhalter were to sort of go, but maybe split the difference between what he actually said, and what Graham is advocating for. If he were going to try to outline these center backs, give us these strengths, we need these players in there, and and maybe also pointing out where Brooks isn't as strong, what would you say it's in the air? Would you say it's being fleet of foot? Like, what is the thing that Berhalter could say about John Brooks that would make you be like, all right, I guess I can understand that a little bit? Because I think we're all on the same page that we felt like Brooks should have been involved. Something else is going on. But if we were going to uh, try to figure out a a useful explanation for why he isn't. What would you go with? It's his lack of quickness, his lack mm-hmm. of, of agility in tight spaces. You don't want him isolated 1v1 against an attacker. You don't really want that in any situation. If it's you know the U.S. in a low block with someone in his area, he can come in and win the ball, either stepping or winning it in the air. But if it's an open space, that's a problem. And so I do sympathize with Brooks when he's, I mean, with, with Berhalter, excuse me, when he's talking about John Brooks' deficiencies. Because even though I just said, you know, against Panama, they're going to be in a, a slightly lower mid-defensive 4-4-2 block, you want Brooks's passing there, but you are a little afraid of his work defensively in space. And that's something that you're not as afraid of with Miles Robinson, with Walker Zimmerman, with Aaron Long, even with Eric Palmer-Brown, who is the guy really along with Long that jumped Brooks in the pecking order for this camp mm-hmm. without Mark McKenzie and Chris Richards. Those players all have, to my eye, more defensive ability in those moments that, that Brooks just doesn't have. But for that trade-off, you lose John Brooks's passing. So, I mean, I feel like this is the same conversation we've had for multiple windows yep. now and I just keep coming back to the fact that yeah it doesn't seem like Brooks is coming back in under Berhalter anytime soon 
I, I agree with you, and I think that if they are able to qualify, then the narrative will change too. Well, we were able to get here without him, so <laughs> like, and, and maybe that's what ends up happening. Maybe he ends up getting called back in. We shall see. For now, a couple other names to mention, uh, as we've already talked about a little bit, but George Bellow uh, brought in as a replacement for Serginho Dest, and I think many, many people, most of Twitter, upset that we did not get Joe Scally. You both also had him on your provisional rosters. Uh, my assumption there, uh, and I think a little bit of what Berhalter has said, is that they wanted a pure left back, left-footed left back. Joe Scally can play left back, left back can also play right back, but is right-footed. There's plenty of right back depth. Uh, so I'm guessing that's why we have George Bellow. But I still would have liked to see Joe Scally. I wouldn't put him quite in that John Brooks category of this doesn't make any sense. But if we continue to not see Joe Scally and if he continues to play for Gladbach, uh, I will have additional questions. Graham, you mentioned Chris Richards being absent. So my assumption is that we'll get uh, a good amount of Walker Zimmerman and Miles Robinson in this camp. Anything else that we should go over regarding the defender category in a broad sense? We'll probably reference it some more when we get into the individual matchups. But for now, any other uh, points on the defenders? I just find it curious that if Beralter wanted that backup left-footed left-back so badly, why didn't he put one on the initial roster? That's a great I, question. I, I, don't, I don't fully understand that. <laughs> I'm not against George Bellow being in this camp. Yeah. I, I, it seems clear to me that Beralter doesn't rate Joe Scally right now, which is fine, right? I yeah. don't necessarily yeah. agree with that, but yeah. he isn't a pure left back. He isn't the classic left-footed overlapping kind of left back that George Bellow is. So I, I get it, but also I don't get it. My guess would just be that like Serginho Dest is that good that it's like, yeah, he can play fair, left back. So fair. he's good enough, but maybe, maybe he doesn't hold other players to that level, which I guess is fair. But Joe, a fair question. Joe, since you're asking good questions, why don't you take us through the midfield? All right, baby. The midfielder group, the midfield group for the U.S. men's national team, Kellen Acosta, Tyler Adams. Those are your two de facto number sixes. Gianluca Busio, Luca De La Torre, Yunus Musa, and Christian Roldan listed in the midfield group in the roster. Presumably all players who can do that number eight job for the U.S. I I mean, it's pretty clear to me that when you look at this group, it's thin. Without Weston yeah. McKinney especially, we talked about this last week, you don't have your first choice, your, your star number eight in this group. You have Eunice Musa still. De La Torre showed well against Honduras. But there's some question marks here in this group to the point where I wouldn't be surprised or disappointed if we saw Gio Reyna get some minutes as an eight. Yeah. I'm not sure how many minutes we're going to get from Gio Reyna, period. But I, I wouldn't be mad at seeing him at the eight as he's working his way back from injury. Just got to start with Dortmund over the weekend. Speaking of that, uh, Berhalter obviously asked about how you replace Weston McKinney, gave the obvious answer, you can't. Uh, he can't be replaced. He's too important. There's no one that's like for like. Uh, so in order of listing potential candidates, Kellen is the obvious candidate. Luca can play there. Brendan Aronson and Gio Reyna, Roldan and Eunice as well. I think Musa was listed last there because he thinks of him as in the other central midfield yeah. position. So yeah. he could potentially fill in for Weston McKinney, but that seems less likely. So Kellen Acosta, Luca De La Torre, uh, and Gio Reyna, all possibilities with Brendan Aronson. Uh, being out. There was a little bit of frustration on Twitter, Joe, that there was no Georgie Mihailovic in this roster. Any any issues there? Do you understand maybe how Mihailovic is a name for later on down the line? It, it feels like he's a name for later. I love a lot of what he's doing with Montreal right now. There's not a direct positional comparison between what Wilfred Nance is having him do with this number eight job. He He's kind of doing both of the eight and the winger jobs with Montreal right now. So it's not a perfect fit in that way. If there's one MLS midfielder, though, that I'm bummed isn't in here, it's Paxton Pomichol, who I had on my preferred roster, who's been excellent doing 
the exact same number eight job that Brother looks for from generally speaking from his number eights with Dallas as, as he would be asked to do in this camp with the U.S. So I'm a little bummed there that we don't see him over someone like Busio or Roldan, but that's the way the, the cookie crumbles to bring it all the way back to the mouse. <laughs> well, well done. Nice callback, Joe. Uh, Graham, uh, I, I saw in the notes that you were feeling like maybe based on some of the midfielders we're seeing, this team feels like a four-two-three-one sort of shape. Yeah. So when when I sat down, um, so Joe, Joe says there the midfield unit looks pretty thin, and when the roster first came out and the way that the roster is set up, set out in the graphic um, by US Soccer's uh, social people, that was one of the things that that first stood out was wow that that's. That's a thin uh, unit, and obviously Sands can maybe play in midfield, and Aronson, before he got injured, can can obviously play there in Reina as well. So that maybe fleshes it out slightly from the defensive areas and the, and the attacking areas. But yeah, when I, even when I sit down now and look at the players available, the players that have been called up, and I just kept coming back to this point about formation, and maybe I'm getting hung, hung up on it too much. Maybe it's fluid enough to to shift and adapt depending on whether the US are in and out of possession, depending on the phase of the match and so on. Um, but so much of Berhalter's time in charge has been about approach and style of play and philosophy and formations. And with McKenney out and Aronson out and um, with Reina back as well, I think that's a key point. I just can't keep coming back to this being a, a natural 4-2-3-1 team. And I'm not saying that's what Berhalter's going to do because obviously he's stuck with this 4-3-3 for, for a while now through the, the qualification, qualification campaign, and he can still do it by dropping Reina a little bit deeper. But if you're looking at the, the natural positions, you know, Adams and Musa maybe as a, as a double pivot, Reina as the central attacking midfielder, Pulisic and Weah as the wide attackers, and then either Ferreira or, um, for me, I would personally like to see Pifok given a chance, at, at least in one of the games, um, as the centre forward. That's the easiest selection to justify in terms of natural positions for for players. Once you once you drop someone back into the the midfield three that isn't particularly that isn't their natural position with Reina, he can he can play there. Then maybe you start to to uh, to get some problems, and and you know you then have to consider if you're, it's a midfield three, is Del Torre going to play there? Acosta could go in there, but as a, as a as a number eight, if Adams is also in there as the, as the six, is that going to work as a unit? So. Just generally, I always think you should find a formation that suits the players that you have rather than make the players fit a formation. And I understand I'm probably splitting hairs here between a 4-3-3 and a 4-2-3-1, and they can be both things and within the same game. But yeah, just looking at this squad, it's a, it's a, it's a very natural 4-2-3-1 team for me. I don't think you're splitting hairs all that much, Graham. I think there's an important distinction between those two shapes. My okay. only issue with that is the only person I think on this roster, maybe two people who I think could do that 10 job well, are Gio Reyna and Jesus Ferreira, and especially Gio Reyna. But the issue there is you can't, I don't think you can count on him to go a full 90, or, or maybe you can get one full 90 out of him, but I don't know that you can get another. We just don't know enough about where he is fitness-wise to for me to feel confident that, okay, he's a guy you put in a 10 role where he's never played for the U.S. national team in a must win sort of window like this is the most important window for the U.S. ever under Greg Berhalter so I, I don't know I, I like the idea but I think it it's a risky one to implement now of all times and also just with the the lack of pure number 10 depth in this group um, I'm going to use the unofficial TSS motto we're going a little bit long uh, so we're going to take a break here we'll be back to round out the position groups with the forwards talk a little bit about who should go where then we'll get into the USA's opponents uh, that soon first a quick break This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We are back. We've talked about the U.S. goalkeepers defense midfield. Graham Ruthven, can you take us through our forwards, our attackers? Of course. So initially, obviously, we had Brendan Aronson, um, who pulled out through injury, a little bit of confusion around that injury. You had Taylor Twelman tweeting that he was out for two to four weeks, which obviously eliminates him from this window. U.S. soccer then kind of clarified that they were they, they were still expecting him in camp and it was day to day. And then later in the in the day confirmed that he was indeed out. So he is no longer part of the, the forward selection. You have Paul Ariola, Jesus Ferreira, Jordan Morris, Jordan Peefock, notably, um, Ricardo Pepe, Christian Pulisic, Gio Reyna, also notably, and uh, Tim Weir. Graham, my, my read on the Brendan Aronson situation yesterday that you mentioned uh, was basically national teams don't trust clubs to actually give the true evaluation of the player's injury, and clubs don't really want their players being released for international duty especially later on in the season. So I kind of read that as Salzburg saying, no, he's injured, he can't go. U.S. soccer saying, we'll send him on anyway, and then we'll evaluate. And then eventually, I think the severity of the injury was such that it made sense not to include him. But I'm assuming that was the back and forth we saw, because I think people saying he was reported to camp, he was expected to arrive, were quoting U.S. sources. And it seems like everybody else was referencing Salzburg sources. And and I think U.S. soccer saying the term day-to-day, they were monitoring it day-to-day, was kind of a, a tell that they were um, they were hedging their bets. They, they knew that something was up. They just hadn't quite clarified the true extent of it just yet. So we won't have Brendan Aronson. We also don't have Josh Sargent. We talked about him in the roster show last week. Uh, but Joe, I'm assuming you aren't too surprised not to see him involved. No, I don't think there are really any surprises in this forward group. Jossie Zardes and Josh Sargent are, are the two main omissions, but it, they're not shockers to leave off. There's not a ton separating the different nines in this pool based off of their performances with the U.S. Nobody's really been scoring goals. Jesus Ferreira has been having some nice bits of movement. Ricardo Pepe had those few goals back in, what, October now, I think? Maybe maybe September, I can't remember. Whenever that Honduras game was. And Jordan Pifak is scoring goals for his club. So I, I think there's reasons to get each of the three nines that are in this roster in. There's also reasons that that maybe we shouldn't be all that optimistic about this group. Either way, I'm excited to see what we get whenever Jordan Pivak plays. I'm excited to get a look at him after that Canada game when he wasn't particularly good for the U.S. But again, he's been scoring goals. Maybe he does something. Maybe Jesus Ferreira brings his his club form back with him to the national team, although I think he's been doing a lot of similar things with the U.S., so it's not all that different there. And then maybe Ricardo Pepe finds something. Maybe he's so, so tired of sitting on the bench with Augsburg that he's going to do something on the field for the U.S. I don't know really what to make of this nine group, but there's there's talent here, certainly. 
Uh, a couple uh, quotes from the Berhalter press conference. When asked why bring in PFOC and not Sargent, he said PFOC is in too good a form to ignore and mentioned that they will need an in-the-box presence versus Panama. So that will be PFOC would be my guess. He said Sargent is playing right wing for Norwich and not getting a ton of chances. Not that active in terms of goals and assists, but he works his butt off. We have to project what he can do as a result, but that basically means... They're not quite sure where he fits, and they would have to figure that out in camp and give him reps in different spots to figure out what was clicking, and maybe they just don't have the time to do that right now, whereas PFOC, I think, can come in and bring something specific. So, too, can Ferreira. So, too, can Pepe. So, uh, less concern about that omission than I am, and Berhalter is, with, say, some of the relative fitness. He mentioned being concerned about Ricardo Pepe not getting as many minutes, not getting the goals, not being in the form they would like to see. All of that means to me that we're going to see experimentation and a couple different players playing a couple different roles for the U.S. when it comes to that number nine spot. Uh, anything else to talk about, like broadly speaking, from the roster for either of you? Not for me. Graham, you got anything? No, I, I just think it's going to be very interesting how Berhalter approaches each game as it comes so obviously the big discussion around the Mexico game is do you rotate that your 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 squad your first team for that game given that some things like Tyler Adams is on a yellow card losing him for the Panama game would be a big blow that Panama game I'm I'm reluctant to say it's a bigger game just because I, I don't know if you're a USMNT fan that there's ever any game that's bigger than a World Cup qualifier away at Mexico but I understand that in terms of qualification, it could be more significant. So I, I am interested to see how Berhalter deals with that. That's the big talking point ahead in this window for me. And we, we've discussed about doing it uh, to, to, to provide a peek behind the curtain of, of the show. We were going to maybe do a, a, a preferred lineup for mm-hmm. for this window but because of all those reasons i just mentioned it's almost impossible to do it because it could it could shift dramatically from from game to game so yeah i think that's going to be interesting so let's talk about that mexico game then uh graham we'll talk about maybe who we would like to see play for the united states because we're going to talk about who we think will play for mexico what we think they'll do some potential strengths and weaknesses for them and for the united states graham tell us about mexico yeah, so Mexico so far it has been, I think it's fair to say, uh, an underwhelming World Cup qualification campaign. They are currently third in the in the octagonal, which is not uh, common for them. Obviously, uh, Canada have been the surprise package, so they're not used to being that far down the down the standings. Having said that, there's still a confidence in this in this Mexico uh, camp that they are going to qualify for the World Cup. It still very much feels like the the guiding light for them is the uh, Quinto Partido, which is the the fifth game, um, and getting beyond that round of 16. And that is maybe, when you look at how that is the thing they always discuss, maybe in terms of ambition, that's that's where Mexico are slightly ahead of of the US. It still very much feels like the US are are focused on qualifying, given what happened in 2018. And once that happens, then focus will turn to the tournament. But despite their their struggles, Mexico are still looking to the tournament itself. This is... uh, this is a, a a a Mexico team that the US seem to have the number of recently. The US are on a three-game winning streak against L3. Um, but as we've mentioned a number of times, um, the US have never beaten Mexico away from home in the World Cup qualifying. Mexico has 12 wins and three draws in 15 games. Um, in terms of their playing style, Mexico are a team that they want to have the ball. They generally play in a 4-3-3 shape, much like the, the US do, although there tends to be a bit more width in the Mexican midfield. 
and uh, they looked to pass with some sharpness and with direct intent. Um, and Tata Martino, their, their head coach, he likes to get the, the fullbacks high and have the midfielders come across and cover, although it will be interesting to see if he keeps them a little deeper against the US, given that, that the, the US are so strong in those in those wide forward areas and that they could have a lot of joy there. Um, there have been times when Martino has used a 3-4-3 to get a bit more cover on the wings, but that hasn't been used for a while, and it seems unlikely that he will change that approach, given the importance of these these final three World Cup qualifiers. Moving to their, to, to their roster and some notable names that aren't, there, um, like the US, Mexico have some some players missing. Uh, Andres Guardado is missing through injury. Um, forward Funes Mori is also missing from the squads. Um, they are the, the two most notable names in terms of players who have been involved in, in this cycle. There's um, a couple of uh, defenders, uh, Cata Dominguez and fullback Osvaldo Rodriguez. They haven't been in, in, involved. Um, and then you've got the two names that just haven't been involved in this cycle at all, who maybe you would expect to be involved. So I guess we should mention Chicharito. Um, as I say, it's not much of a surprise he's, n- he's not on this roster because Martino just hasn't fancied him for one reason or neither another in this, uh, in this cycle. And that has been a, a point of contention with the, the Mexican fan base. With Funes Mori not in this, in this roster, this might have been an opportunity to, to bring in uh, Javier Fernandez, uh, Hernandez, but... He still hasn't done it. And then the other one, obviously, is Carlos Vela, um, another MLS player we're all familiar with. Um, for different reasons, he has had uh, some issues with the with the Federation. He's not part of the, the squad at the moment. So he is another notable name. I'm going to try and rattle through some key performers very, very quickly because these are players that we all kind of know some, some household names in there. So in goal, you have 36-year-old Guillermo Ochoa. At this point, a stalwart for L3. He's got 125 caps. He's played at World Cups, Olympics. Everything. He's done it all. He, he even uh, streams himself playing uh, Warcraft on, on Twitch. He's quite <laughs> an interesting character. Uh, Hector Moreno, uh, moving into central defence, still a very important player for, for Mexico. Uh, at 34, he maybe doesn't have the pace that he used to have, but still strong in the air, still good at distributing out from the back. Then moving into midfield, Hector Herrera, um, another experienced player, recognisable name. He is, of course, on his way to uh, Houston this summer. He's now 31, but he still gives Mexico a lot of presence in the, in the centre of the of the pitch. And he's actually been in really strong form for Atletico Madrid recently, so he should be in, in good shape for this, this international window. Sticking with the midfield, I'm now going to mention someone I know Joe is a fan of, Edson Alvarez. Um, in contrast to the names yeah. I've mentioned so far, he is only he's only 24. It still feels like he's on a, an upward trajectory um, he's getting better and better he is an excellent midfield anchor in that defensive role um, and he should be a, a key figure for Mexico in this window then let's hit the the wide areas up first Chucky Lozano a Napoli winger likes to play on the the likely to play on the right side of Mexico's front three he's got a goal threat he's energetic he's playing at a high level for his club side and then uh, Ticatito Corona on the left side he is capable of playing all the way across the, the front line, um, but it's likely he'll play on the left side. He's In terms of his numbers this season, he's not much of a goal scorer. He hasn't scored at club level for Porto or Sevilla in the league all season, but he does have two assists in his last uh, six La Liga games, and he's made a good start to, to life at Sevilla. Um, and then up front, the position where the US maybe don't have a standout talent, Mexico don't have that problem. They have uh, Raul Jimenez, a traditional number nine, who actually scores goals. What a what a revelation. Um, he's good in the box. He's good in the air. He can become Mexico's seventh all-time top scorer with a, a goal against the US or at any point in, in, in this window. Um, and so that is where uh, 
the Mexico are with this roster. A very experienced squad, if you're being kind, if you're being on the pessimistic side of, if you're looking on the pessimistic side of things, slightly aging, and that is maybe where the US can have an advantage over them. We obviously saw that in the first qualifier where it felt like the US just kind of outran them and overwhelmed them with energy. And there is a chance, despite the surroundings at the Azteca, that the US could do similar in this game as well. Yeah, uh, Carlos Salcedo of Toronto also not included, and I think that's been a consistent thing uh, under Tata Martino because he doesn't really love how he struggles with pace. And I think the same goes for Nestor Araujo, who is in this squad, but also can be a little bit in trouble when he's dealing with pacier attackers. So I think the United States will probably try to play that aggressive sort of attacking high, high running, high octane game. Maybe, but maybe they'll also just try to frustrate and see <laughs> if they can kind of bait Mexico out. Cause it does feel like a game that Mexico will be actively trying to win. I think a draw is okay for both teams, but given the recent run of results for Mexico versus the United States, given that they're behind in qualifying, I am of the opinion that Mexico will be trying to get the win here. Uh, Graham, are you inclined to agree or disagree? Yeah, I I think so. As much as anything, because of just the narrative around this Mexico team, they kind of need a a win over their their closest rivals just to ease some of the... I wouldn't even call it pressure because, as I say, there is there is a, a a belief that they are going to go to mm-hmm. Qatar that 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 isn't really in jeopardy. But beyond that, there are certainly questions about Martino and the way he's setting up this this team. So a, a win over the US is is going to ease some of those concerns. I I I think it's going to be really interesting. I'm I'm kind of going over old ground a little bit here, but to see how the US approach this game because um, Mexico it feels like they're there for the taking, but the US might play the occasion and the 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 rivalry I guess they might play the rivalry rivalry and be a little bit more conservative I would say even if they're being more conservative in midfield they have to attack the the fullback areas of of Mexico because Mexico's right back and left back positions have become real weak links in recent times for club and country uh, Gallardo and Chaco Rodriguez have been poor for a while they're getting worse and worse Gallardo's in this squad Chaco is not which is not down to injury that's just down to his form that Martino's left him out at right back um, Araujo has done well to, of uh, the LA Galaxy he's done well to, to rise up the depth chart, depth chart after only making his debut in December he has done well in the games he's played so maybe he's first choice for the World Cup should uh, Mexico get there but he's he's not really fully settled into this this team at this point and then at left back you have Gerardo uh, Arteaga who's getting minutes at Genk but again isn't really settled into that position. It kind of reminds me, in the, with Mexico and their fullbacks, it, it reminds me of the US and uh, their number nine uh, dilemma. They do have some options, but none that are really experienced or have made that position their own or have even played a, a lot of minutes or games in that position. So that could be good news for the US, given their strength in, in the wide forward positions with Pulisic and and uh, and Wea and players that can the, the fullbacks that can get high as well. So yeah, even if the US are going conservative in central midfield and and trying to stay compact, they need to need to hit these areas. And then I think if you, we're looking at Mexico's schedule, they've got USA at home. They are away to Honduras, and then their final game of qualifying is home to El Salvador. Honduras dead last in the Ocho. Uh, El Salvador I think third from bottom, but they have already been eliminated. So. Stands to reason, those two games, slightly less high pressure, slightly less high profile than that home game against the United States. And that's why I'm inclined to think that we will see Mexico play their strongest possible team, 
be aggressive, try to get that win, try to leapfrog the United States and really solidify their spot early. I have long been of the opinion that the United States should do the same thing and should go at Mexico and should try to kind of take the game to them. And I think that was rooted in the idea that Mexico would be seeking the win, would be being aggressive at home, and the United States could potentially catch them out and frustrate, uh, which means I am okay with them, the United States, playing their strongest starting eleven. But that leads to a lot of potential issues, like, say, Tyler Adams carrying that yellow card. Gets a yellow card here, and now he's suspended for the Panama game. That is the one that the United States absolutely needs to win. So, Joe, what would you like to see the U.S. do in this one? Would you prefer to see – I think we're already going to see sort of an experimental team, given a lot of the injuries we've already talked about. But how would you like the United States to approach this if Berhalter gave you a call and said, Joe, tell me what to do? It's a very likely scenario, I know. Oh, yeah. No, I've got Greg on the phone all the time. I I would partially rotate for this game. I don't think you want to rotate, you know, a full 11 in, or anything close to that. I think you want to play center backs that you can trust in, in really both of these first two games because I think those guys can go longer, right, without needing a break with what they're asked to do. I think you want to play whoever you think your first choice goalkeeper is. We all think it's it's, it's likely going to be Zach Steffen. I don't know that it really matters who the nine is because I don't think there's a whole lot differentiating those players right now. But I I don't know that I would go out and start Christian Pulisic in a game like this. I don't know that I would go out and start Tyler Adams in a game like this. I think you want to tweak things slightly, not because you're not trying to win, not because you're not expecting the players you're putting in the lineup to go out there and, and fight and really try to be aggressive and press and take the game to Mexico. I think we'll see a lot of that from the U.S. I think they'll also be deeper at times and try to hit on the break. But I think the U.S. is going to be aggressive. But you do that because... You, you don't want to risk the Panama game, which is the most important game in this window by far with where they are in the standings. We talked about all that last week. I went through the permutations. Go back and listen to that show if, if you're, if you're wanting to learn more about that idea. But, you know, if you start Tyler Adams and Kellen Acosta, which I think is a real chance alongside Yunus Musa in the midfield for Greg Berhalter, I think there's absolutely a chance he does that. And Tyler Adams picks up a yellow and Kellen Acosta either goes a full 90 at the Azteca and is dead tired or has some sort of injury or picks up a card or whatever the situation is. You come back home in a must-win game against Panama and Orlando, and you're without your first two-choice number six options. So then you play James Sands, and that's that's fine. I think he can probably do that job, but why even get to that point? You know, that's where I am with this group. I I think you can say, we're going to go out and we're going to play Paul Ariola and Tim Weah on the wings for 60 minutes, and then we're going to bring Gio Reyna and Christian Pulisic off the bench for the last 30, and then we're going to go for it rather than saying we're going to go out and burn everybody's legs from the start and we're going to be in trouble against Panama. So I think it's it's nuanced, yes, and I don't know which way Baralter will go, but I would partially rotate. I would save the legs of your stars at least a little bit and really try to put the screws on Mexico in the last 30 minutes and then go home and beat Panama. And, and Joe, that, that latter idea that you say there is the, is the only way I would I, I personally would think that would make some sense. I just think at some point in the game you have you have to go for this 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 Mexico team. I I've seen a lot of projected lineups for the Mexico game where essentially it's a second string team, and I just I just can't get on board with that train of thought. Leaving aside all the rivalry stuff, which I personally think does matter, of course it does. Um, but yeah, leaving that aside, it's crazy to me that a coach would heighten the pressure on himself and, and his players for that second game against against Panama, where if you strike out the first game, you know, you've lost an opportunity to essentially qualify for, for, for the World Cup. So if if the lineup comes out and Areola's in there and it's and it's a, a very compact central mid, midfield unit, I'm not necessarily against that. 
I just want the US to have a game plan to at some point attack Mexico and actually go for a result that all but gets them to Qatar because that's that's what we're talking about here. There's a, there's an opportunity here in the Azteca against Mexico to basically stamp your ticket to Qatar, which is what this this window is all about. So I don't know why you wouldn't look at that as an opportunity. One other thing for me, the last time we saw these two play was the 2-0 US win in Cincinnati. And it wasn't quite as different of a lineup as I expected when I went back and looked at it. It was Zach Steffen in goal. It was Jedi Robinson at left back. It was Zimmerman and uh, Miles Robinson as your center backs. It was DeAndre Yedlin starting a right back. Then there was the MMA midfield, and we know we won't have Weston McKinney, so that's an absence. But up top, it was Wea, Pepe, and Aronson. Uh, we obviously won't have Brendan Aronson, but in that game, Christian Pulisic did come on as the impact sub late and had exactly that. So... There are like kind of previous instances where that sort of like weather the storm, run them down, and then bring on the talent to try to get that result has worked. But I also find myself nervous of the idea of starting a weekend team going down 2 0 in the first half. It finishes 3 0. And then the United States comes away from Mexico, yes, with a few players rested, but with a 3 0 loss, and maybe morale is low. So I, I think what I come down to is basically we just don't know what they will do, and I don't envy Greg Berhalter, but I do think anybody who's going into this game saying this is exactly what they need to do, this is exactly what they need to play, and if they do anything else, they're totally wrong, unless they are clairvoyant or from the future, <laughs> I would say that that is being uh, slightly ridiculous, because I think we could see a lot of different things, and then we'll find out what works. Uh, this game I, is... Probably the most nervous I've been for a U.S. game in quite some time, and that is saying something. I'm pretty nervous about this window overall. Uh, anybody want to hazard a prediction for this one? Graham, have you got any any specific predictions for USA-Mexico? Yeah, so I'll hit you, I'll hit you with a, a very specific prediction. Obviously, a lot of this depends on the team that Berhalter sends out against Mexico, and, and that, that could completely disintegrate if it's, a, if it's a different team with a different approach, but... One of the things I feel strongly about with this selection is I think you have to play Tyler Adams even on that yellow card because I think there's a chance that the US, as they did in the first qualifier, just outrun and and really kind of um, dictate the energy in the centre of the pitch with their midfield against Mexico's ageing midfield, which has had trouble throughout this qualification campaign. And I think um, the US can control that mid- control that midfield area at the Azteca, which is going. You know that sounds nuts, but that's just where these these teams are at the moment. So my VSP is that at least two American players will have more touches of the ball than any Mexican player over ninety minutes. And obviously that is dependent on the team that Berhalter uh, picks. He could select a team that's going to sit deep, stay compact, and try and hit uh, uh, Tim Weah. And uh, and Jordan Morris on the break, and that would not probably pan out that prediction. But that that's what I'm that's what I'm going to go with. So it's at least two U.S. players will have more touches than any other Mexican players. Yes, or any other any any Mexican players. Period. Any Mexican yeah. players. Yes. Yeah. So essentially, the two the players with the two the two players with the most touches over ninety minutes will be Americans. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, that is USA Mexico. Joe, we're going to be uh, talking about that one. After the game, obviously, but we'll also be talking about it before and then immediately after. Hey, yo. Yes, Taylor and I are doing a live show in the Bleacher Report app before and after the Mexico game. So we'll be alive right as the lineup drops. 
before the game, and then we'll be live right after the final whistle for the post-game show in the Bleacher Report app. We've done these before. They're tons of fun. Come watch. Come hang out. Just have to have the app, and it's it's free, all that good stuff. And then we're doing another one for the Panama game on Sunday. Taylor will be there at the stadium in person like a like a real journalist guy. <laughs> we're excited about that. He's going to be calling in, so we'll have analysis from Taylor in person and, and mine as well. So for both of these first two games, Mexico and Panama, we're going to have shows in the Bleacher Report app. Like a real journalist, indeed. We will be back to talk about that Panama game in just a moment. First, one more break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. We've talked Mexico. We've talked USA. Now let's talk USA Panama or more specifically Joe Lowry. Let's just talk Panama. Last time we saw them play the US, it was not good. (laughs) It was not good at all. It was a no good, very bad day. It was a no good, very bad day. A 1-0 loss away to Panama where the US played so, so poorly in that game. That game and the first half of the Honduras game, for my money, are the two worst bits of soccer we've seen from the U.S., certainly in World Cup qualifying and probably ever under Greg Berhalter. Really, really poor in that game away to Panama. The U.S. will need to change things. But I do think there's a lot that we can take away from Panama from that game and from what they've done in World Cup qualifying to predict how they'll play against the U.S. on Sunday. So they're led by Danish Danish manager Thomas Christensen, fourth in the Ocho right now. They are probably the team, along with Costa Rica, really, but the team, the most immediate threat that the U.S. needs to distance themselves from, which, to be clear, is why I'm putting so much weight on this game and why I would partially rotate against Mexico, is because this is this is really important to get this game right. Panama, again, fourth in the Ocho right now on 17 points, four points behind the U.S. and Mexico. They're very much in contention to qualify for the World Cup, which is not something that I expected, not something that I think a lot of folks expected. They've had to move through some other rounds of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying to even get to this third round. Tactically, Christensen sets them up in a 4-4-2 or a 4-2-3-1 shape. They defend in that shape. That's what they did against the U.S. In Panama, they've done that against basically every team in the region. They like that shape. They'll defend there. Sometimes a winger will drop into the back line to make it a back five. They did that in in February in their 1-0 loss to Mexico, where they kept things close until late in that game. Credit to Panama for that. They'll step high from time to time, but they do try to be compact and, and keep their lines tight. They don't always succeed at that. A bit more on that later. But overall, they've been strong defensively in this this entire third round of World Cup qualifying in the Ocho. And they certainly didn't give the U.S. anything in the first meeting, although I would put a lot of the blame for that on the U.S. But still, certainly credit to Panama for that. In the attack when they get the ball, they don't spread the field really wide and play this beautiful possession style. It would be pretty unreasonable to expect that from them. But they have really capable players. Coco Carasquilla, who I love for the Houston Dynamo, He's become a starter for them really over the course of this cycle. He's an every-game player. He conducts a lot of the play in midfield. He's good on the ball, technical, good in tight spaces. He's a good player. I think, listeners, you'll enjoy watching him in this game if you can 
get over biting your nails like like maybe the rest <laughs> of us will be doing. They want their wingers to get forward into space. Uh, Edgar Barcenas and Cesar Yanis both have a lot of speed if they're playing out wide. There's depth there. Uh, not a ton of differentiable talent in my view in, in the winger pool, but they certainly have speed and technical quality there. And then Anibal Godoy uh, in, in midfield for them as well. He's going to be partnered almost certainly alongside Coco in that group. He's good on the ball. Again, covers a ton of ground for Nashville and MLS, does the same for Panama. Also a threat on set pieces. So those are two key performers, Godoy and Carasquilla in central midfield. Uh, and then looking at key performers up top, they've got Rolando Blackburn and Cecilio Waterman, who both have three goals in World Cup qualifying. They're both on this roster. They're, they're not perfectly well-rounded forwards. They're not necessarily the most technical players, but they are goal threats. I mean, they, they've put up more goals in this round than a lot of U.S. players have. So there's certainly something to be said for that. Almost all of their key World Cup qualifying contributors are here. The, the only one that's maybe not here is forward Jose Fajardo. Um, he's probably the biggest absence. He's played in four games in the Ocho and started twice. But again, they have attacking depth both at the nine and out wide. So he's not like this devastating absence for them. The only other key player I want to mention quickly is Mikel Murillo, uh, who MLS fans know well, also played in Europe and is playing there now. He gets forward from right back and is, is a very good player in that spot. So he'll provide some width and some speed on that wing. Also usually a decent 1v1 defender. So Godoy, Karaskia, Murillo, the, the strikers, those are all players that I'm certainly going to be keying into and keying in on for this Panama team. Again, defensively, in terms of overall macro strengths for this team, they'll put the impetus on you to break them down, at least for stretches of games. That's something the U.S. can do, certainly didn't do in the away leg in Panama. But, I mean, they're capable, the U.S., but it's not something we've seen all that regularly from them. We saw some good signs in the last window. We've seen good signs at home, and this game will be at home. So there's some encouragement there. But they're going to be defensive, at least in, in certain ways, uh, in, in the lower or mid block. They have real skill in central midfield as far as uh, a plus for Panama goes. I mentioned Godoy and Carasquilla as well. They complement each other, and they're, they're a threat in those areas to charge forward and in possession and, and to cover ground defensively. The other strength for this Panama team, as I see it, is set pieces. That's how they got their goal at home against the U.S. Anibal Godoy got that goal, um, and, and there's some, some issues with the U.S.'s marking there. Both Godoy and Rolando Blackburn are threats in the air. Uh, Blackburn, again, one of the striker options. And the center backs are dangerous there, too. So the U.S. is going to have to be good on set pieces. I think that could be a really influential part of this game for the U.S. And so I'm curious to see how that unfolds. Quickly, the weaknesses um, before I, I shut up and let you guys ask questions. Panama, I, I mentioned that defensive block. They can be exploited. If they step up and press, and I don't know how much they'll do that. I suspect very little. If they step up and press... The U.S. should have the quality, especially on a, a good field in Orlando, to play through them. There'll be space between their lines. They'll be able to access. The U.S. will be able to access that space. That's an opportunity. And then even against that defensive block, if you execute well in possession with quick ball movement, movement in behind, overloads in wide areas, that Panama can be beaten. They've, they've conceded goals in this cycle, and they'll do it again if you put the right sorts of pressure on them. It won't be easy for the U.S., but this team can be broken down. And then the U.S. should be able to press and win the ball. They should be able to step high if Panama lets them and win the ball in those areas, even though the U.S.'s press wasn't particularly good away in Panama. The U.S. should be able to do that and then just use a talent advantage. There's opportunities here in 1v1 situations with Pulisic, with Weah, if you saved at least some of their legs for this game, with Gio Reyna to drive at individual Panamanian defenders and, and create advantages there. So I think that's my recap of Panama. Defensive, most likely they're going to be in a 4-4-2. They'll attack pretty quickly with the ball. They'll look to attack on set pieces. This should be a fun game. The U.S. will have, I think, a lot of the ball, and it's up to them to do some good things with it. 
Joe, I appreciate you ending on that note. The U.S. will have lots of the ball because going back and reading my notes from that uh, disaster in Panama, the two things that stood out were that Panama, I fully expected to be in that like deep block, every number behind the ball, forcing the U.S. to play through. And a lot of the time they were not. A lot of the time they went at the United States and made them uncomfortable. And I think that's a thing that they were trying to do at home where they felt like they had a little bit of momentum. But I think for the United States, they were much more focused on being direct. And I would say overly focused on being direct. They were looking for long balls. They were looking for big switches. And I think in the moment, that felt to me like it was... Burhalter's briefing was this is going to be a, a, a bunkered team, so we're going to have to pass our way through. But if we can catch them on the break, if they do get stretched, then we should look to kind of hit them rapidly, hit them with direct balls. And I think they were maybe overly focused on that. That was my read last time. Uh, this time around, if they are to have more of the ball, it seems as though we don't want to see the kind of verticality in the way they're playing. We don't want those big balls into the channels. We would prefer sustained possession and ideally quick passing and moving. Well, you need some of both, right? I mean, I think true. just true. think about El Clasico that we all watched over the weekend. The big switch from center back to, to weak side winger or even, even to the winger on the strong side is a big part of how Xavi's Barcelona attack and they put on a clinic for a lot of their possession play in that game. So you can have those switches, just execute them, right? There were too many sloppy passes in that game. And you want to couple those those longer, more direct balls with precise technical possession play. And that's something the U.S. certainly didn't have in that game. Panama did press, Taylor, you're right about that, but it wasn't always this super coordinated, we're going to push all 10 men into the attacking half kind of press. It was, we're going to send our front two at you, and the U.S. in the game was so poor with the ball that Kellen Acosta and the center backs and and the goalkeeper couldn't pass their way through those two players. And so it it didn't matter what kind of pressure Panama was sending at them. It didn't have to be good. It didn't have to be well coordinated. There There were times in that game where Panama's pressure simply wasn't good. It just didn't matter. The U.S. was that bad on the ball in in their own defensive third trying to build up in that game. So you need better play there. You need more precise, quicker attacking play. And you do need some of that more direct vertical runners in behind or isolating wingers on 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 the wing. You need all of those things to combine to beat a team like Panama. Joe, I'm going to give you an idea and then I leave it to you to rip it apart or say, that's interesting. Uh, So... If we're going against a Panama team where we will need more of the ball, obviously we got to vary it a little bit in the approach, but we expect to have more of the ball. We want more midfield creativity. Could that not be the game where it makes more sense to maybe have Gio Reyna playing central sure. and letting him like do some work there, and then maybe it's Kellen Acosta with somebody else in midfield versus against Mexico if you need the more disciplined running, the ability to handle the physicality and sort of ride a challenge but keep the ball would a midfield of Tyler Adams, Yunus Musa, and Luca De La Torre accomplish that? Like, basically, could we see that midfield three against Mexico and then maybe an Adams, Acosta, Reyna, or some combination of those three against Panama? We totally could. Yeah, and it's hard for me to say which three we'll see in which sure. games, but to, to focus on Gio Reyna, because I think that's the, the crux of your question, Taylor. I think the Panama game is a better fit for him as an eight than the Mexico game is. I don't know that you want to, especially coming off of this injury and all the struggles he's had. We've even seen Reyna for the U.S. in September of 2021. I don't think you want to throw him in as an eight at the Azteca. Maybe you start him on the wing. Don't think you do that in central midfield. But yeah, I think having Gio as an eight against Panama where you're going to be tasked at least in some ways with getting between the lines and breaking through that block you're going to want someone with that technical quality. So it could be Reyna as one of the eights next to Musa. It could be Musa and De La Torre. I think we'll see some of those, you know, two of those three players in that eight group with either Adams or Acosta behind them. 
What I think I ask you this all the time, Joe. I will ask you again for this one. Against Panama, what does it look like in the first 15 to 20 minutes if the United States is playing the game that we want to see them play? What are some sort of obvious signs that things are going well, aside from being up 2-0? Yeah, yeah, goals would be a great start for yeah. that, Taylor. Good gracious. Okay, now I'm nervous. You just did it right there. That's all it took. Uh, for me, it's it's breaking into high value attacking spaces. I wrote I wrote about this a little bit in my column for MLS that I think is is out probably by the time people are listening to this. But Bob Bradley's Toronto FC team was really trying to break into those outer corridor outer corridors. Easy for me to say of the box, those Man City zones, and they're they're called that or optimal assist zones. Because Man City love those spaces and they're one of the most dominant attacking teams ever, right? They, they love getting into those outer channels of the box and cutting the ball back. If the U.S. is breaking into those spaces and getting cutbacks in, if they're getting whoever's playing the nine touches inside the 18, those are the kind of things that you like to see. If they're counterpressing and winning the ball back high and playing quickly and getting touches for the wingers in dangerous spaces, those are things that you want to see. So for me, it's going to be about... Where is this U.S. team moving the ball? Where are they getting touches and how are they creating chances? If we're seeing them move the ball into good spots and get chances, even if there's no goal in the first 15 to 20 minutes, I think fans and, and certainly Greg Berhalter should be feeling pretty good about things after that first 15. Uh, Graham, I know you had a tight like 10 minutes straight that you wanted to do on Panama. Do you still want to get to that or, or should we just keep it moving? <laughs> no, I, I don't really have much to, to offer. I find the discussion over how the U.S. is going to approach it really interesting and and. I, Joe, would like to know who's, we've talked about what the right midfield formula might be for the US against this Panama team, but who's who's the right number nine? Because that is always a discussion point with every game the US play at the moment. Who Who is the, if, if Panama are going to be in that low block, who's going to stand the best chance of success in that match? I I think it's Jesus Ferreira. I think he would do a good job of trying to drop in and disorganize that team and then make runs into the box. If you want an example of him doing that, just go back and watch any of his first half actions against Portland over the weekend. It was a clinic for that kind of thing with Dallas. I wouldn't be surprised if it's Ferreira. I also would not be surprised if it's Pifak, which is someone that Baralter specifically yep. mentioned almost too obviously. I think the scuffed guys, or maybe it was Paul and Sam, I don't remember, were talking like maybe this is a ruse and Baralter's just throwing out misinformation. But <laughs> after watching some film against Panama, they will let you get crosses in because they're trying to protect their box and so they don't always extend fully to the, the winger or the overlapping fullback out, outside in those outer channels, they will let you get crosses in. And I think PFOC is undoubtedly the, the biggest aerial nine threat that the U.S. has. So maybe you play him. I would lean against Pepe for this Panama game. I might start Pepe at the Azteca. I might save him for Costa Rica. Or I might just use him off the bench in whatever game I see fit. But Ferrero would probably be my choice, but I wouldn't be shocked if Baralter goes with PFOC. Joe, I have chaos for you. You ready? I'm ready. All right, here, here is your, your midfield and attack for Panama. What do you make of it? If we had Tyler Adams at the base or Kellen Acosta at the base, then we're going to go two number 10s for this one, and it's going to be Gio Reyna, and it's going to be Jesus Ferreira with PFOC <laughs> ahead of them, and then Pulisic and Weah out wide. I'm honestly ultra not, attacking. I'm ultra not even attacking. mad. I'm not even mad at it, Taylor. I'm not <laughs> against it. Ferreira brings some of that work rate. We've just yep. never seen him that deep for the U.S. We've never seen no. him do that eight job. I don't think it'll happen, but would nope. I be totally against it? I mean, kind of, because it'd be, it'd be weird for Brawl to throw that, that giant curveball into things this late. He'd probably get some heat from that from, from me and Fine. others as well. But man, I mean, it'd be fun. It would be fun. That, would, right. that seems like a team that is based on a Twitter poll. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that feels like what I would do if I were managing oh. them in FIFA, and then we would win the game like 5-4 to four or 6-5 right. to five or something. Who Whatever it takes, Taylor. Whatever it yeah. takes. I'm just trying to make things fun, because I next have to talk about Costa Rica. 
And man, Costa Rica way is not fun. Graham, are you ready for some numbers that are mildly terrifying? I'm ready. All right. Uh, by my count, and I may be out of date at this point because I haven't updated it since I did the Soccer 101 episode. Uh, I believe the USA and Costa Rica have played each other 41 times since their first encounter in August 1975. The U.S. has a slight overall advantage in the record with 19 wins, 16 losses, 6 draws. That's good. That's not bad. Until you realize that 19 of those, of those 19 wins, I believe 19 were on home soil. Of those 6 draws, 5 were on home soil. So, so Uh-oh. far away to Costa Rica, we've got 0 wins, 1 draw, 16 losses, slightly, slightly frightening. Uh, a lot of that has to do with where those games used to be played. The old Saprissa Stadium was basically a fortress of misery if you were an away supporter. Estadio Nacional has been slightly more forgiving. That is where that draw occurred. The U.S. never even got a point in Saprissa. So this time around, we will be seeing a motivated uh, Costa Rica team that will be playing for their lives. They will potentially still be eligible. We'll see how the rest of the results go. But if this ends up being a game where the U.S. and Costa Rica are both sort of have something at stake, I will be even nervous than I already am because of those historical figures. Last time they met, the U.S. won 2-1 in Columbus, but I think there are some things that we can look to that happened then that we, if you're a U.S. fan, need to not happen this time. One of those would be allowing Costa Rica to score inside the first minute, which is what happened in that game. Uh, Kasher Fuller uh, on a long ball over the top. I believe Chris Richards fails to win the header, and they are in with a 1-0 lead. Uh, Serginho Dest equalizes with a screamer from outside the box. He played aggressively throughout, so we will need whoever starts it right back to do the same. Own goal in the second half forced by Tim Weah made the difference. But the U.S. really struggled with Costa Rica's directness of their play. It's how they got that opener. But they also got a number of chances by being aggressive both in balls over the top, but then also pressing the United States and really limiting their ability to build and find the easy passes and, to steal Joe's phrase, find high-quality attacking spaces. There we go. Uh Adams struggled to play vertically, which is a thing that we've talked about. Uh, Ricardo Pepe showed his rustiness. Weston McKinney dropped deep a lot. I'm just sorting this, setting the stage for things we might need to see in this one. Jean-Luc Abusio came in and had a strong game. But overall, the U.S. was sloppy in possession uh, and gave Costa Rica many of their chances. So if the U.S. wants to turn things around in this game, they will need to be much tighter on the ball, much tidier in possession, and less susceptible to those direct attacks from Costa Rica. And that is ex- exactly what I would expect Costa Rica to try to do in this game. Uh, we most likely will see them either in a 4-4-2 or a 4-2-3-1. They can play a back three. Uh, that is a possibility. But I think we'll see a lot of the faces that have become familiar to U.S. fans over the year. That would be Kaylor Navas in goal. That would be most likely uh, Ronald Mazzarita at left back. Fuller, the aforementioned at right back. Kendall Waston and Calvo uh, in the middle. Tejeda and Borges as your double pivot, like the more defense-minded midfielders. Brian Ruiz might start ahead of them. He tends to be their halftime super sub. When they need to change things up, they bring him on. But he does give them attacking creativity. And I would assume Joel Campbell will be in there up top by himself. And if not by himself, then he'll be partnered by Ortiz uh, through the middle. They're capable, as I said, of playing a back three. My money is on a back four. They've got Kaylor Navas, who has the kind of veteran leadership ability. He also always pulls off one ridiculous save against the United States. And it's worth noting that... In that game, uh, the last time they played each other in qualifying, Navas had to be subbed out at halftime, and then the U.S. got the own goal winner. So does that happen if Navas is in there? Who knows? What I do know 
is that this is a crafty veteran team, and they will CONCACAF with the best of them. They've got lots of 30-plus veterans, four players over 100 caps, nine over 50 caps, and that's 10 if you count Matarita's 49 caps. He's almost there. Uh, of the 27 players on this roster, 19 play in the domestic league, six for Alajuelense, and six from uh, Herida. Herediano, I apologize for butchering that one, I'm sure. So there's a ton of familiarity in this team. There's a lot of veteran ability. There are some youngsters in there. You've got a few 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds in midfield in the attack as well. Uh, you've got Jewison Bennett uh, from Herediano. He's 17 years old. He's already got two caps. He's a left winger. I don't know how much we will see of him because I think this will be a more conventional Costa Rica team with Yeltsin Sahada in the middle, with uh, Celso Borges in the middle, with maybe uh, Justin Torres out wide uh, on the right side if they go with a little bit more attacking flair. But for the most part, I think we're going to get a 4-4-2, 4-2-3-1 defensive, look long, look to hit on the break. And when they do, they will commit numbers against the United States and against uh, Mexico and Panama in World Cup qualifying. When they broke, they would have five and six players involved in the attack, usually that number increased as the game went on, but that did also leave them incredibly susceptible to counterattacks. And that is where the U.S. could definitely have some joys if Costa Rica do need a result, if they need to get all three points, if they have to be aggressive. The United States then can sit in, look to hit on the counter, commit numbers forward, and uh, get the goals where they need them, get the opportunities where they need them. But they will need to handle Costa Rica's direct play. They will also need to handle the set-piece threats, uh, because that is definitely where Costa Rica can also cause some problems. Uh, and again, they know how to game. They know how to go down and feign injury. They know how to kill time. They know how to frustrate. And I think this will be a great opportunity for us to see how the United States has developed from the first game of qualifying until now, that first game on the road against El Salvador, when... I came away from that one thinking it's a lot, it's one of the youngest teams the U.S. has ever put on a field in qualifying. Going on the road to CONCACAF, you got to learn, you got to figure out how to get through these games. It's, it's difficult opposition in difficult settings with, where they're highly, highly motivated to play against you, uh, specifically. And so now we get to see with the United States closing out on the road in Central America, how this team has grown and developed. And my hope is that they have grown and developed quite a bit. Uh, my hope is also that this game doesn't fully matter because yeah. <laughs> by the end of the Panama game, the U.S. has kind of secured qualification and then we're playing with house money at that point. But I do think, regardless of if the United States is desperately chasing a point or three points in this game, or if they've got it wrapped up, I think Costa Rica will be exposed at times. And similar to what Joe talked about with against Panama, where you need the possession, but you need the hard running, and what Graham talked about against Mexico, where you can kind of tire them out with that hard running. My specific prediction for this game would be that the United States will score at least one goal in the second half as Costa Rica gets stretched and tired. And with all of those veterans in the advanced ages, maybe after their, this being their third game as well, maybe there's a little bit of fatigue, maybe there's some squad rotation, maybe we don't see the consistency that we sometimes see from Costa Rica, which would be weird to have a World Cup without them in it. Uh, but that's CONCACAF getting better, so we shall see what happens. That is Costa Rica. Gentlemen, any questions, any thoughts on Costa Rica? I do. Kay I was just say Kaylor Navis makes me nervous. Yeah, <laughs> this yep. game matters, <laughs> yep. uh, and it gets down to that last that last match, and the US has to score past Navas in a very Concacafe sort of game. Um, yeah, that that makes me even nervous. As I say, I like your VSP Taylor a lot because I, th I think about this game 
in the context of it. Obviously, we can't predict out that far, but it's very likely to your, to your point and the theme that you kind of raised throughout that, it's likely that Costa Rica will need a result. You know, they're five points back of the U.S. right now. They really need a, a nine-point window or they need a lot of points out of this window and for the U.S. to drop points if they're not getting a nine-point window. They need a lot of results in this window to get through. And so it's likely that they're going to need to push for something at home, probably three points in this game. If that happens, you expect them to have a lot of the ball, which is not something they've done almost ever throughout qualifying so far. From From the numbers I've looked at, Costa Rica has only had more than 50% possession in two of their previous 11 games in this round. They don't want to hold on to the ball a ton. It's not what they do. They're not comfortable with that. If that's what they have to do in this game, the stage could be set for the U.S. to be aggressive and to attack and transition to set up to frustrate a little bit while still controlling some of the ball because I think that's that's the U.S.'s M.O. at times. There could be space in behind. There could be opportunities to hit Costa Rica on the break. I like that theme, Taylor, and, and honestly wouldn't surprise me at all if your VSP played out exactly how you set it up for us. Yeah, and I would be okay with that. Let's just hope that uh, maybe they get a goal in a game where they're already like four points ahead and have secured qualification. We will know at a good amount more once this first round of or the first game of this window is in the books because we've got Panama Home to Honduras. That is a very bad Honduras team. We would expect Panama to get a win there. We've got the U.S. on the road to Mexico. But we have Costa Rica home to Canada. Uh, and that is one where Canada topping the group. They have, I believe, secured qualification at this point. Uh, or at the very least, I think they can like maybe get a fourth place. But Canada's going to the World Cup, and that should be celebrated. If they get a result here, it does sort of kill things for Costa Rica at that point. So... United States, I think, should be keeping an eye on how they do against Mexico, obviously, but U.S. fans maybe also just keep an eye on that Costa Rica-Canada game. That will tell us a lot about how much there is to play for in that second game and uh, the third game against Costa Rica at the end. Anything else from this window to be discussed, to be broken down, to be analyzed, or do we feel like we've done a good enough job for now of previewing the USA and their three opponents? I'm just looking up breathing exercises on WikiHow. Taylor, I'll send you the link. Oh, boy. Please do. That Mexico game is going to be epic. Graham Ruffin, thank you very much for taking all the time to research preview Mexico, talk about the USA, and listen to me and Joe talk about other CONCACAF teams. I do (laughs) wonder how strange it is for you to be, like, slowly learning so much about a confederation that I'm going to assume prior to focusing on the U.S., you maybe didn't have quite as much interest or knowledge in. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a time a few years ago where I did, I did kind of cover a lot more CONCAF than I did, certainly did last year, but absolutely. It's kind of all coming back now. I, I have yet to work out a way to watch these US games in <laughs> the UK because I am very much, I like to watch my football on my TV rather yep. than on my laptop or yep. my phone or anything like that. So yeah, I'm going to have to figure that one out. I think it's also on at 2 a.m. on Friday night over here. So that's going to be. A late one, but yeah, good good luck, everyone. Genuinely, like I, I, I would very much like the US to be uh, at the World Cup. Certainly, after missing twenty eighteen, it would feel quite cathartic. I think, in a sense. So, good luck. So, if you can find a way, though, Graham, are you going to be watching it live at two a.m. or will you watch it the morning after? I I watch the Mexico game at, at live okay. at, at two a.m. just because uh, it's Mexico USA. The the Panama one I think is also late as well. That's midnight, so that feels to me like a half time job. And if the US are one or two goals up, uh-huh. then that's bedtime. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I watch the Mexico one. 
I like it. I like that we'll have uh, three TSS hosts in three different time zones for that one. Uh, for now, Graham Ruthven, thank you again for talking about uh, these games and the U.S. and many other things, as well as the introduction to Iron Brew. I appreciate that too. <laughs> thank you, Taylor. That that is actually the revelation of this podcast is that you have you have tried Iron Brew and liked it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I did. I I did. En- I did enjoy it, my friend. I'm an I'm an honorary it. American, and you're an honorary Scot. And I will say, I appreciate that. Thank you very much, my friend. Uh, But uh, I enjoy that it has sugar in it, which is not even a burn. It's no high fructose corn syrup, just pure sugar. Always a positive thing. Joe Lowry, thank you for being as sweet as sugar and for having all the knowledge today. Aw, Taylor, you shouldn't have. (laughs) Uh, Listeners, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again soon.